Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. It is so good to be with you this morning. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here as well. Um, just actually have a couple of other announcements I want to mention to you this morning as we get ready to jump into our series, or we continue our series on Abraham's life. Um, the first one, we have a few things that I want to mention because the holidays are coming up, and there's some opportunities to jump in and for Redemption Hill um, that we're already involved in to be able to, to be a blessing to people in our city who are in need. Um, the first one I want to mention is, is the Little Lights Christmas Store. Um, we are, one of our ministry partners is Little Lights. They are a great ministry who we have been working alongside for a dozen years now, the whole, really the whole life of our church. And if you're looking for a way to give back this Christmas, they host a Christmas store every year where parents can come in and shop for presents for their kids. Um, but they, the gifts are completely reliant on donations from people like us and um, those in the neighborhood. And so they would love support this year. There are two ways. They have an Amazon wish list or a donation. You can find that information on the RHC app on the bulletin board. And so Jordan Mitchell, our deacon of mercy, posted that, and you can find it there. So if you'd like to help out some kids in need through Little Lights, um, that is a great opportunity to do so. And second, I want to mention that um, Eastern High School, we have been doing this, I don't remember, I don't know how many years now, but um, started by Tatum and Andrew Foote and continued now by the Line Buzz. And Redemption Hill has provided Thanksgiving boxes for families at Eastern High School. And um, Emily has, has been organizing, and Chris, has been, has been organizing everything this year um, to make sure that that happens and pleading with our community group leaders. And at, at this point, we have everything that we have provided, 46 Thanksgiving boxes for families this year. The only thing left is 46 pre-made pie crusts, and so, um, and some needed donation money and some funds, so if you are interested in helping out with that, the deadline is, I think, this weekend, um, next weekend, so Emily is right here if you would like to help out with finishing off to make sure those boxes are completed. Um, she's right there. And then finally, another opportunity I just wanted you to know about that our church was able to help out with is um, there's a, a DC DPR football team that had no footballs, which is hard to make the sport happen. And so Redemption Hill provided a dozen footballs for their team. It's also the case that that team happened to win the 14U DC DPR championship yesterday morning. And so Simon, stand up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's pray together and jump right in. Father, we are thankful to, um, for your work in our lives and for the chance we have 
as a church, that to be here now in this city for over 12 years and to be a part of your work here, to be able to come alongside people in, in long-term ministries and, and opportunities to partner with Eastern High School and Little Lights and, and come along, people in, in DPR and these families who are in need. And so we're, we're grateful as a church for that chance to just do little parts in seeking the good and the welfare of this place. Um, today, as we open your word, we, we're turning to, the, to, to Genesis 21, and Father, we, you know what we're going to read here, and we're going to see kind of some things tie, that you tied up in the life of Abraham, and as we do, and we encounter what it looks like, what, when we see your sovereignty on display, I pray that you would help us to be able to see that your sovereignty is a, is a reality that we can rest in, that it's good that it's a comfort and a balm for our souls. And so we lift this time to you and our hearts to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. And well, we are in, our, in Genesis chapter 21 today. We've been walking through a series in Abraham's life, one chapter at a time through Genesis. And, um, and so t- today we come to Genesis 21. And as I just prayed, we have three different aspects or three different stories in Abraham's life that kind of come to have their loose ends tied up today. And in that, we see God's sovereignty clearly. This can be controversial, it can get uncomfortable. We don't really like to talk about sovereignty because to be sovereign means to have power, but not just power, it's absolute power. And, and, and power, sovereignty is a terrifying concept for us, especially if you grew up in the US of A. Like we, are, we have cast off the shackles of monarchy and our sensibilities reject that, and we're all about self-rule and the voice of the people and e pluribus unum, unless there is a royal wedding or coronation. <laughs> then we are all about it, and we wish that we were back under the monarchy. But it's terrifying because we know that power corrupts. We see it around us right now. We're, we're headed into what I'm sure will be a very calm 2024 election year. And, and we see that and we know that while power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we encounter this in little ways, right? We can talk about this when people have a little bit of power and they decide to flex that power. I mean, we experience this every time we go to the airport. You are powerless before TSA. If you want to get on an airplane, you must do what they tell you to do or you're not going. And you, that can be a fine experience, or it can be a miserable experience. Where I'm going <laughs> to stop. I was going to say things that, um, <laughs> and and I've had a mix of those. I mean, we can experience in other ways. We going to a DPR football game when they decided that they would not allow us to bring coffee in at 9 a.m. on a 40 degree morning. It's, what am I going to do? <laughs> or trash pickup. The power that our our trash men carry, because if they don't pick things up because it's not packaged properly, the rat infestation will grow. You go to the DMV, and you are powerless, unless you have every document from your entire life. (laughs) You play a sport, and it doesn't matter what you think of the refs or the umpires, and the more you tell them what you think, the worse it gets. And so it makes sense then if the way we think about God is just as a better version of a human, 
an idealized person, then we're terrified by God's sovereignty. Because God can feel arbitrary. And then when we think about God's decisions, it can feel as arbitrary as stuff like you can't bring coffee into a football game. And, and, it, and it, it can feel that way. And, and we, it's difficult for us to hold together that God is inseparably and fully loving and just and sovereign and good. And that none of those outweigh the other. And so, again, in some ways, Genesis 21, it's, this is a long section I'm about to read. It, it ties up loose ends in Abraham's story as three stories kind of come to their conclusion. And for one, it's, it's also a beginning. But, but the, the big theme, that we're, the thread we are going to trace today is that, that, that we can rest in the sovereignty of God, of the everlasting God. And we're introduced to a new characteristic of God in the very end of this passage, that he is the everlasting God. And so this is what we read in Genesis 21. It says to us, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes and she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and, and, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness, and he became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me in the land where you have sojourned. 
And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. And so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of the seven lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So three stories tie up their loose ends. We've been following since Genesis chapter 12, for 25 years of Abraham and Sarah's life, the promise that Abraham would have children, that Abraham and Sarah would have offspring, that his offspring would outnumber the stars in the sky, be like the dust of the earth. And finally, Isaac is born. We've been following since chapter 16 really since chapter 12 when they went to Egypt and came back, but then chapter 16 when Abraham and Sarah cooked up a plan to be able to bring offspring since Sarah's womb had closed, since she was no longer even, even the ways of women had gone from her. She was no longer biologically capable of having children, and so they decided to try things with Hagar, which culturally at the time was a reasonable pathway, but it was not God's plan for them. And now there's resolution to the story with Hagar and Ishmael. And last week we looked and saw the story of Abraham and Abimelech, that, that Abraham <laughs> repeated the same things he had done in Egypt. He lied to Abimelech and called Sarah his sister and then kind of self-justified about it. And God was the one that protected Abimelech from sinning against Sarah and, and potentially compromising the whole covenant because God had just opened up Sarah's womb. Abraham prayed over him and healed him, but Abimelech rightly was pretty angry about things. And he, he, said, he said to Abraham, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom this great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. What did you see that you've done this thing? And then God said to him, he should let, send Sarah back to Abraham. But he was like, okay, Sarah, but I'm also sending sheep and oxen and servants and a thousand pieces of silver. Like, go. And so when we left off, it wasn't, I mean, he pray, Abraham prayed for Abimelech and his whole household was healed. But it just kind of drops off then. But here they come to a covenant, an oath together, an agreement. And so in this, we, all of this, we see God's sovereignty on display. We see God working in Abraham's life in ways that Abraham couldn't have worked on his own, couldn't have figured out on his own. And so we'll take him in three pieces as we go this morning, is we see the sovereignty of the everlasting God. 
Again, we get introduced to God. This is the first time that that title is used for God is here in verse 33. When Abraham put a tamarisk tree in Beersheba at this well that had been dug, and he called the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, as a way to recognize God's sovereignty over all things. When, we, when Scripture uses that title of the everlasting God, it's, it's referencing that God is the one who is before all things and after all things, who is eternal, who is the one who is who is all-present and all-knowing, who has, has energy that will never fail, that he is the one who, who, who is above all things. And so here it emphasizes, I believe, his sovereignty. And we see first that God is the source of true joy. And I love this. Do you remember back in, in Genesis 18 when Sarah, when Abraham, Abraham actually, actually in the chapter before that, when God came to Abraham and said to him, hey, you're going to have a child. And he goes, well, yeah, I have Ishmael. He goes, no, 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 you're going to have a son by, from Sarah. And, he said, and Abraham laughed at God and said, um, I, I'm 100 years old and she's 90. Like, I don't, I don't think so. And God said, no, this is going to happen, and so you need to circumcise your whole household and yourself. And so he did. Then he came back, and Abraham prepared a feast for, for the Lord and for two messengers, angels that he had with him. And, and Sarah could hear them talking, and he made the promise again. When I come back this time in about a year, you, you and Sarah will have a child. And Sarah laughed. And she denied it, too. She, she laughed because she was like, what? there's no way. Like, this is, this is an impossibility. So she laughed, saying, okay, after I'm all worn out and my Lord is old, now I'm going to have this pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah just laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time next year, I will return to you, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it and said, I didn't laugh, because she, she was afraid. And, and the Lord said, no, you did laugh. And so that, that laughter of cynicism that both Abraham and Sarah had now changes. And it turns to pure joy. That we, right off the top, like I love this, that it doesn't, chapter 21 wastes no time. Like they've been waiting 25 years. We've been tracking all the way through Abraham's story and with Sarah. And, and now right there, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. So who is this everlasting God? He is the one whose word we can trust. He came when he said he would. He did just as he said he would. He, and Sarah conceived just as he had claimed. She bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken. And they called him Isaac. And Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And yet I've given him a son in his old age. Like, she bursts into laughter out of joy. Have you had moments like that in your life? Where, it, where something happens and it's so surprising that you just, there's, there's no way to respond but to, to laugh. And it's, there's just joy that comes up and overflows. That's different than a laughter of cynicism. I, I feel like the laughter of cynicism for me comes way more naturally. But there's moments where that real joy just bubbles out. 
Now, there's, there's a difference here. There's a third kind of laughter that happens in chapter 21 as well. And it says that the son, Ishmael, the son of the, of the slave woman, was laughing at Isaac on the, at the celebration when he was weaned. It seems like a pretty big reaction, doesn't it? That, again, Sarah's reaction is like, out. <laughs> it's kind of the th- same thing she did when Hagar conceived. She was like, get out. And, but we have to understand here that at this point, Ishmael is not just, when we hear that he's like hiding under a bush, I think we picture a two-year-old or an infant. Ishmael at this point is probably about 16 years old. I, I love my children. 16-year-olds are about the meanest people in the world. <laughs> Like they, this is observations by a comedian that I like, that they will find the thing about you that you don't even know you're sensitive about. <laughs> um, this has come up a, a lot somehow lately. Um, we had our kids a, few, a couple of summers ago. We, were, we did like the, went out and saw some friends in the L.A. area and then took the Pacific Coast Highway all the way up towards San Francisco. And we were in San Francisco and then came to Yosemite, but going across the Golden Gate Bridge on a day that was actually clear so we could see and there was, wasn't fog rolling in. And across the bridge, beautiful scenery everywhere. Kind of went across and went through some driving through the woods and came back, going back into the city. I'm, it, you know, we, we had rented a Jeep, so we had the top off of the Jeep. And here I am as a dad going, this, I, look at what I'm providing for my family. You know what my teenage girls were doing? They were taking slow motion videos of my right earlobe because it was flapping in the wind. (laughs) I never thought to be sensitive about my earlobes in my life, and suddenly I was terribly sensitive about my earlobes. So I can understand the way that Sarah was feeling as this 16-year-old was making fun of her boy Isaac. But there, there is something deeper there. She's defensive of her son's inheritance. They're in a sticky legal situation because Ishmael does have some kind of legal claim here. And, and so it, Isaac means to laugh. And in some ways, in the story, like the narrator, there's something beautiful happening here that's hard to capture in English, that the narrator is, is trying to capture that, that Ishmael, in some ways, is taking the place of Isaac, whose name means the one who laughs, or it means laughter, who's supposed to carry the promise, and he's kind of subverting that by, being, by becoming the one who laughs and maybe the one to take the promise himself. And so Robert Alter, a a brilliant scholar of biblical translation, and particularly Pentateuch translation, um, said in his commentary that we may also be invited to construe this as Isaacing it. That is, Sarah sees Ishmael presuming to play the role of Isaac, child of laughter, presuming to be the legitimate heir. And so here, something needed to happen. But before we get to that, we'll come back to that because we'll, we'll come back to Ishmael. I don't want to leave behind Sarah. Let's stick with that God is the source of joy. The everlasting God because he kept his promises and turned Sarah's cynicism to joy. 
It's easy, to, again, it's easy to laugh the laughs of cynicism. It's easy to, to, to laugh at things, not just people's earlobes. It's, um, it's easy to, to distance ourselves and our hearts from things by being cynical about them. And it can be tempting also to fill our lives with false promises and false happiness or, like Ishmael here, be taking on the promises made to others and, and taking those on as our joy. But, that's, but what Sarah is experiencing here, the laughter of true joy, Joy is when when is when she is experiencing the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, when it has come to bear in her life. And listen, this isn't going to be every single day that we have this kind of experience. There are days where we will experience sorrow. Some days we will experience joy. But the one thing that we can count on is that there is an everlasting God. And he knows everything about us. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. He knows our desires and our worries and our fears and our hopes. And joy is not just a throwaway thing. It's not just frivolous to God. C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. And I don't think we take it nearly serious enough. That joy is a fruit of the Spirit, that is love and joy that is the second part of the fruit of the Spirit that's named. And there may be no clearer witness to the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ than the presence of real joy in his people, regardless of the circumstances around them. Whether a day brings us suffering and sorrow or happiness and fulfillment as we see the promises of God coming to their fulfillment, the reality is that most of Abraham and Sarah's story so far has been in that gap between the promises of God and the reality they're walking through. And this is a moment where the two meet. Karl Barth, the theologian, said, joy is the rarest and most infrequent thing in the world. We already have enough fanatical seriousness, enthusiasm, and humorless zeal in the world, I could say in D.C., but joy? This shows that our perception of the living God is rare. When we have found God our Savior, or when he has found us, we will rejoice in him. Joy is the simplest form of gratitude. And so if we really understand who God is, if we understand the promises God has made and that God is one who keeps his word and will bring his word to fulfillment and that what he has given us in Christ is the ultimate son who brings us joy and laughter because he makes a way for us into God's presence, that we, then we can rest that God's sovereignty as the everlasting God can be the, can be the root of our joy whatever we face in our lives. And so trusting and resting in the sovereignty of God, of the everlasting God, is the source of our joy. Second, though, God hears our cries and opens our eyes. <clears throat> he hears Hagar and Ishmael. Now, under, again, there was a sticky legal situation here that Sarah knew, that Abraham knew. You have Abraham that is, that's pretty discouraged here. When, when Sarah says, get them out, get him out of here, and it was, it was displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, he cared about Ishmael. This is not the first time that that's come up. Abraham loves his son Ishmael. And, and I want you to pay attention to what God has to say here, too, because God here is not dismissive of Hagar and Ishmael. But he does say, hey, don't be displeased because of the boy or the slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. 
Now, we've seen Abraham get in trouble for doing what Sarah told him to do in the past, but here is God coming through and saying, Abraham, this time, this is right. Do what Sarah told you to do, and be, but listen, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. And it says here that so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water. I just, next week we're going to see, we're gonna, the next, very next chapter is, is when God tells Abraham to bring his son Isaac up on a mountain. And that passage begins by saying, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. It's the same language with Abraham being asked by God to sacrifice control of both of his sons. And God here says to Abraham, I've got him. He can't stay here, but I am going to take care of him. He is going to be a great nation. He is your offspring. And so the promises that God had made to Abraham of being the father of many nations would extend to Ishmael. And under the laws of Hammurabi and, and Lipit Ishtar, that um, Ishmael it was in a clear legal position to be some kind of an heir. Abraham understood that, and inheritance rights are, were contingent at this time on the father's acceptance of an infant as his legitimate son. And so there's no doubt that whether it was a full claim to the top of the inheritance, Ishmael would have had a claim to some of the share in Abraham's estate, but also by law, a man may grant freedom to a slave woman and the, child, or the children she bore him, and they would then forfeit their inheritance. And so there's legal implications of what's ha happening here. And Sarah asked Abraham to enact a legal right. Abraham loved Ishmael and didn't want to do it. And that's why God intervened. And I think that I, this is uncomfortable. And I, why would God choose one son over the other? In a world that's, that we think so deeply about power dynamics, why would God choose for Sarah and Isaac and against Hagar and Ishmael? I, but I really think that, the, that as this story is being written down, that, that Moses feels the same tension we do. That the reason we see God's voice come into Abraham is to make it clear to us that this is the command of God. This isn't just the word of Sarah. And because we know that God is just, this cannot be an unjust act. But there's two primary reasons here for Abraham to act in God's words. First is that Isaac is the line of promise. It's the line that God has promised, not the one that Abraham and Sarah's schemings tried to force God's promises through. And the second is Hagar and Ishmael are not abandoned. God will care for them, and Ishmael has a great future ahead of him. And so Hagar's journey then... There's an assumption in the text that she set out for Egypt. That's where she was from. They were down in the south, down south near Beersheba. And so they, there's an assumption there that they had adequate supplies for their journey, but that they got lost in the wilderness. That is not the first time that Hagar got lost in the wilderness. This is the second time. Um, and the first time we see in Genesis 16 that she said, you have seen me. And now the second time, God comes to her, and in verse 19, God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She put Ishmael under a, a bush. She, they ran out of water. They were wandering around. She had lost her way, and she didn't want to watch her teenage son die. And so she put him in the shade and went a ways off, but the angel of the Lord came and spoke to her and said, listen, you're, what troubles you? 
God hears you. God hears the voice of your son. So go, pick him up, lift him up. I'm going to make him into a great nation. They showed some water. They filled the skin with water and gave him a drink, and they made it to Egypt where the boy grew up. God did not abandon Hagar and Ishmael, but they had different, he had different plans for them than he had for Sarah and Isaac. Now, we don't like the idea that anyone can have plans that get in the way of our own or that shape our own, but, but we also need to see that there are these themes throughout Scripture about God, that touch on God's sovereignty as the everlasting God that, that, again, if he is an idealized human being, then that's terrifying because his plans and his actions become arbitrary and cruel. But if God is what Scripture claims him to be, then he is sovereign and he is good. He is just and he is merciful. His kindness and his goodness and his love are always present in fullness. And that means that his plans are always going to be above us. His thoughts are above our thoughts. This is what the prophet Isaiah says in the 55th chapter when he says, when God says through Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He goes on to talk about his word, which we've seen came to fulfillment for Sarah. And he said, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and don't return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so here his word was that Sarah would bear Isaac and through him would come the promise of the redemption and the blessing of all of humanity. And now his word has come to Hagar and Ishmael that Ishmael also would become a great nation and God would preserve him and protect him. By God's sovereignty, the promise of his, his promise has never been purely about biology though. This is something that Paul picked up in Romans chapter 9 when he was wrestling through that Jesus opened the way so that anyone could come in, that our salvation is based on our, uh, God's grace alone, and it's through faith alone in Christ that we are brought into this family of God. It's not by biological bloodline, but he's wrestling through what the implications are then when you have this bloodline of promise through Abraham. And he says here in in Romans 9, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when it goes on, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man through our forefather Isaac, and it goes, it goes on and on how God was continued to be faithful. So Paul says even from the beginning, it was God's promise that was the important factor in how he was going to bless all the peoples of the earth. In Galatians chapter 4, and we don't have time to, spend, to dig in deeply there today, but Galatians chapter 4 and into chapter 5, um, the Apostle Paul also talks about Hagar and Sarah as being representative of a covenant of works and a covenant of promise and grace. 
that one shows that what happens when we work for on our own, that, that it's, it's the, the efforts of the law of trying to earn things on our own and, and find our own ways rather than resting in the promises of God, and that, that Hagar represents that route where, while Sarah shows that God's word will come true and his promise will be fulfilled, but only in ways that he alone can receive the glory. God has set us free And in Christ, anyone can be children of the promise with Isaac. And so listen, we have no idea what God's plans are, often for our own lives, and let alone for somebody else's. But we can trust that the everlasting God sees and hears, that God can open up anyone's eyes and can bring, and that they will be able to see the life-giving waters in the midst of the desert. In our own lives, we can trust that God can, when we cry out to God, he hears us and he can open our eyes and, and he can give us life-giving water in the midst of the desert. And I couldn't help but read this in Genesis 21 and read the angel of the Lord coming to Hagar and opening her eyes to, to water that would sustain her and sustain her life and sustain Ishmael's life and promising that life that would go forward. And, I, and the, well, meanwhile, we have the promise coming through Isaac and, and I just couldn't help but think about John chapter four and the woman at the well as Jesus met with her and opened her eyes that, as he said, listen, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink because I have water to give you that will ne- you will never thirst again. It's, it's living water and you'll have a spring of life welling up within you. So this is the promise of the hope in Jesus is that God hears our cries and will open our eyes to see where we can be nourished and fed and receive life. All right, the third and final area we see God's sovereignty today is that God restores relationships. This is a tough one, right? You got the two sons, pretty clear how you know, this is tied together, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, remember Abimelech? <laughs> Let's go back to him before we go, go on to Isaac's life. Now, why does that appear here? I think because this, I really think because when we get to verse 33, that concept of the everlasting God is really what knits these three together. And here, God restores relationships. And that's how it fits with the rest of the chapter. So at this time, so it's going on saying that this is at, this, at the same time that all this is happening. So Isaac is born. They have a feast where he is weaned. The, they have this break where, uh, where Ishmael and Hagar are sent out. And at that same time, Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all you do, so let's come together and make an agreement. And so this is all happening simultaneously. You get to chapter 22 and it says, after these things, here's what happened next. And so we see something of God's character in this as well. Abraham, this is one of the things I love in this section, what we see in Abraham. Abraham had, remember what we saw in him last time around with Abimelech, is that, that he was, he like weirdly lied, he kind of twisted the truth, it was kind of half-truth, where he's like, well, she's kind of my sister because she's, you know, from my father but not the same mother, and we had this agreement that everywhere we'd go she would say she's my sister, and, and it's like, Abraham, what are you doing? God has given you the promise that he's going to make you a great nation. He's going to give you this land, that through you, all the, na- all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. All people are going to be blessed through you. Like, what, what are you doing cowering to Abimelech as if he's anything? 
You're, you're forgetting and you're not relying or trusting on God's provision and promise and protection. But now he's seen God's word come to its fulfillment in Isaac. He has a newfound confidence in God's promises and their fulfillment that they're going to come true. You know, notice here that there's never a spot in this, in this section that Abimelech is called king. Now Abraham and Abimelech are equals. They're, they're, he's not coming under him or cowering to him. This is the first time we see Abraham lay claim to any part of the promised land when he says, hey, by the way, this well that I dug, some of your folks came and took it. And Abimelech's like, whoa, I never heard about that until now. Like, okay, good, you got to take that well. Like, take it back. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. Do you, do you remember what Abimelech gave to Abraham? When he was like, okay, God was like, send Sarah back. He's like, okay, and take some sheep and some oxen and some servants and some silver. And so now Abraham's like, hey, that's, that sheep and oxen you gave me, you can have it back. There's, an, there's a leveling out here that happens as he returns some of what Abimelech had given him. You see, Abraham here shows us that what's true for us, the more we recognize God's faithfulness and his sovereignty in our lives, the more confidence we will have. Because what can really hurt us? If God is watching over us, then what do we have to be afraid of? And, and it's the more that we'll live into our identity as those who bear God's image and likeness, and the more we'll rely on, on God to provide for us than our own schemes, and the more we'll trust God to protect us, the more we'll be able to live into the fullness of who God has created us to be. It's in the same way that Aragorn, the rightful heir to Isildur, at his coronation at Minas Tirith, said to the hobbits, Frodo and Sam, Mary and Pippin, my friends, you bow to no one. Abraham, you bow to no one. Now, he had lied to Abimelech. Abimelech was rightly angry with him, and he did whatever he could to get rid of Abraham and Sarah, and he lost a lot of wealth and potential reputation. He risked his life and safety because God said, like, hey, I'm going to kill you if you don't make this right. And he's like, hey, I'm innocent. And he said, well, God says, well, I kept you from sinning. And now Abimelech's men had kept Abraham from using a well, which water is pretty important in the desert. And so you've got this, like, Abraham's offended Abimelech. Abimelech's men have, have taken something that Abraham had. But there's a restoration of relationship here as they're brought back together. They make a covenant together. And, they are, and here Abraham finally lives into the fullness of what God has given him. And they're restored. Now, this one I, I, I want to be able to dig into, but we just have a, a couple of minutes. Because there's so much complexity here for us. Most of our relational pain and relational breaks are not going to be solved this simply. And we don't know what was happening behind the scenes. I mean, this is a very quick paragraph or, or two that we have. But, but we... When we experience open conflict and betrayal like Abraham and Abimelech had, then it's, it's difficult. But there's even more subtle kinds of relational pain that can be maybe even harder. Bernie Brown says that when the people we love or with whom we have a deep connection stop caring, stop paying attention, stop investing and fighting for the relationship, trust begins to slip away and hurt starts seeping in. Disengagement triggers shame and our greatest fears, the fears of being abandoned, unworthy, and unlovable. 
What can make this covert betrayal so much more dangerous than something like a lie or an affair is that we can't point to the source of our pain. There's no event, no obvious evidence of brokenness. It can feel crazy-making. See, the, the hardest situations to navigate in our lives might be broken relationships. On one side, setting boundaries for people that have done damage to us, and what does it look like to have appropriate boundaries? On the other side, loving people who walk out of your life, who you're longing for and want to have in your life, and, and in both of those cases, like full restoration of relationship might be impossible. On the one, because it might be dangerous and unwise. On the other, because it takes two sides to be restored. Like reconciliation and restoration aren't the same thing. But whatever the case, we cease to have input or even knowledge on how somebody else's story goes. And that is brutal for us in our hearts. Like, where can we find hope when things can seem so hopeless? I know for me, for us and our family, this is some of the most difficult things that we walk through. The only hope we can find is that we have an everlasting God who works on timelines that are beyond what we can think through. In August 2019, I have, my Uncle Scott was dying from pancreatic cancer that came on and was quick and was very aggressive. I remember talking to him on the phone. He was saying, I said, well, can I pray for you? Pray that you'd be healed. And he said, yeah, you can pray for me, but I'm guaranteed healing. And I was like, okay, cool. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm, God's either going to heal me today when you pray or he'll heal me when I get there. And he's right. If we actually understand God's everlasting nature, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his love, his sovereignty over all things, then we can trust that we will be healed from all our sickness, that we will be freed from all our pain, that we will be released from all our sorrow, that we will be restored in all our brokenness, that we'll be set free from sin and all its effects for all of eternity, and that the broken relationships we experience here and now will cease to have the pain that they do, and that those who follow Jesus we will feast with and come to commune with for the rest of eternity, and the things that have divided us will be made right. And at times, our sovereign, everlasting God will allow us to get a taste of eternity here and now. And so that's what we see here in these three instances, is that our sovereign God, our everlasting God, is giving Abraham and Sarah a breakthrough of a taste of eternity and the fulfillment of his promise in his word in the birth of Isaac, because they're filled with joy and laughter. He gives Hagar and Ishmael a taste of, his, of eternity as they experience that he hears them and he sees them and he provides for them and provides life in the future. And Abraham here experiences a taste of eternity as a relationship is restored when damage had been done both ways. It's, this is a message we need today. Because we live in a world where power gets twisted up and abused, whether it's at a national and international level leading to, to wars and abuse and, and misuse of finances to destroy people and nations, or whether it comes down to getting to an airport. 
And it, it, we, it's hard when we, when, we, when we experience that misuse of power and abuse of power to trust that God isn't that way. But what we have in Scripture is, from start to finish, evidence of his character and his dealing with us, with his people, that he is sovereign and everlasting, that he is the source of true joy, that he hears our cries and opens our eyes and restores our relationships. And the promise of it all is that it is what we find in Christ, that he came and made a way for us with the guarantee of eternity. And so all we're left with is to be able to cry out as with Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Father, would you help us to rest in your sovereignty? Would you help us to be able to experience your sovereignty not as a hammer to to break us down, but as a pillow to lay our heads on at night, that while we sleep, when we come to the end of ourselves and we're exhausted and worn out, when we can't see which way is up, when we're experiencing pain and suffering, that you are the everlasting God who is sovereign and good. Lord, thank you for the the truth we see in your word, that you keep your promises in your word. That Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years and it seemed beyond hope, but you brought Isaac. Thank you, Lord, that we have such clarity in your word that you see us and hear us, that you are watching out over us in times that we can't even realize it when we're wandering around lost in the wilderness and and yet you're providing for us in ways we can't see. And thank you, Lord, that in a world of broken relationships that you give us hope of restoration that you can bring relationships back together now and restore them, and if not now, then in eternity. So with all of this, we, we lift our hearts to you, Lord, and ask that you would help us to find something of the secret of real rest and joy in your presence and trust your sovereign and good. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.